Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. My name is Podcast Mike. Just introducing this week's guest, Anita Heiss. We recorded this a few weeks ago. This is a fantastic conversation between Will and Anita. Anita, if you are not familiar with her, is an Indigenous author, poet, activist and social commentator and a member of the Wiradjuri Nation of Central New South Wales. Anita speaks with Will about Australia's Indigenous heritage as well as her new novel. And you can find out all about Anita and all of the things that Anita does on her website, anitaheist.com. You can support us here at Willosophy by donating as little as a dollar a month to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Willosophy. It goes a long way to help keep everything running here at uh, Tofop Productions. We have some other podcasts as well, Tofop, Fofop, and Two Guys, One Cup, an AFL-adjacent podcast. You can find all of them at tofop.com. Aside from that, this next conversation is absolutely incredible. If you like this one, you might also enjoy Philosophy with Shelley Ware, another episode from this year that was absolutely fantastic. And another one with uh, comedian Kevin Cropinieri, also from this year. Uh, both really, really great episodes, which also touch on some similar themes as this one. Uh, so go and check them out. Go and check out the back catalogue of Philosophy episodes, because there are a whole bunch of incredible episodes uh, just by scrolling up in the current podcast feed that you're in wherever you podcast but for now i will pass it over to anita heiss and will anderson for this episode of willosophy enjoy Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? Oh, you and do Yanada Heiss, Baladu Waradri Gilan. Aramichi Gandhi Bala Williams. So good morning. My name's Anita Heiss and I have Waradri belonging from Arambi and Brungle Missions in central New South Wales and I'm a Williams. Uh, well, it is so nice to have you here, Anita. We have known each other for actually a very long time, it turns out. Not uh, much in the last sort of 20 years, but back in the day, you used to be quite a regular guest on a show that Adam Spencer and I did on Triple J Breakfast when we were when we were all younger people. <laughs> so I like to say back in the dream time. Yeah. When we, uh, <laughs> in the, yeah, in the way uh, white Australians measure history, it was a very long time ago in the actual history of this country, not that long ago at all, to be honest. But uh, so it is very nice to have you here. Thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. I do appreciate that. And uh, I think, you know, we, we dived in at the deep end, so we might as well start there, which is, the history of this country and like, you know, the fact that Australia has this incredible, you know, uh, you know, First Nations story. Um, Tell me a little bit about, you know, your connection with that, particularly through the current project you have, you have a new book out and let's start with the book and then we can work from there. So tell people about the book. Okay, well, uh, you know, in my introduction, I actually located myself. I'm a Williams from Cowra and Brungle, so my nation is the Wiradjuri Nation. And the that country spans, we're known as the people of the three rivers, the, the Womble, which is the Macquarie, the Galari, the Lachlan River, and the Murrumbidjabella, so the Murrumbidji River. And a lot of my writing is around that space. And, of course, the new book, 
Billy Adadungalung Duray. Can you say that, Will? Uh, yeah, I can say it. I'm not going to now. I wouldn't want to show off in front of people. But obviously, you know, that's how I warmed up for the interview. I just, oh, I read right, the, okay. I read, that's my new vocal exercise. I just do the name of your book a few times. Say, say it again and, and explain to people what it is. Okay, so Billy Adadungalung Duray. Billa means river in Wiradjuri. Uh, Yarodang is dream. Galang is plural, so many dreams. And Duray is the action to, of having the dream. So Billy Yarodang Galang Duray, it's a river of dreams. It's set in obviously central New South Wales, in Gundagai, um, uh, Wagga Wagga and Brungle. And it begins with the opening of the great flood of Gundagai in 1852, where a third of the town drowned over three days. And two Aboriginal Wiradjuri men, I should say, went out on canoes over the period of that time, Yadi and Jackie Jackie, and saved between 59 and uh, 69 lives. There were two other men out, I believe, um, Long Jimmy and Tommy Davis, um, searching as well, but it's understood that they never saved any lives. So in... So these were the heroes of the Great Flood during a time when Aboriginal people in New South Wales lived under a whole range of different legislation and, and, and policies and so forth that denied freedom and so forth. So in New South Wales, it was a Masters and Servants Act that wasn't specifically for Aboriginal people, but it is believed um, by the lawyers I had go through all the legislation that there is zero doubt that Wiradjuri people would have lived in fear of um, breaking uh, baking anything under that policy and throughout that act so they lived in fear of of that and were living you know servants and stockmen and so forth so I wanted to write a story to begin with I wanted to write a story about women living on the land at the time uh, sometime in Australian history in Wiradjuri country and then in, on the 165th anniversary of the great flood in 2017 the town of Gundagai unveiled uh, a massive statue of both men, Yanni and Jackie Jackie, in a canoe in, in acknowledgement and recognition for the heroes of the flood. You know, I wasn't in Gundagai, my family were there and I watched it unfold on social media and I thought, how is it that this country does not know about, first of all, that this is one of the greatest natural disasters in our history, and secondly, about these two men? And of course, in recent times, we've had, a, particularly since the Black Lives Matter movement gained international um, momentum, we've had this conversation internationally about statues and what, you know, what is an appropriate statue. And in Australia, we've been talking about it in our community for a long time. You know, all these statues of um, explorers and discoverers with no mention of the black fellas and led them across you know, mountains and ranges and so forth. So I thought, how is it that people don't know about these heroes? And I knew immediately that I needed to write them into the story. So the story begins with the great flood of Gundagai and opens with the terror of that time. And I spent a lot of time down in Gundagai. Uh, I have family down in Brungle. Most of the people in Brungle are born in Gundagai. And um, so I have a lot of input from locals down there. I've actually met one of the descendants of someone who was saved by Yari. And when we launched in Gundagai, he stood up and he just said, I'm so grateful because I wouldn't be here today. So the story then goes from, from Gundagai over to Wagga because Wagga is the place where I have been learning my language and working on nation, but we're actually nation building and so forth. And I've spent a lot of time, not only in the classroom with language, my language teachers and so forth, but also in standing in the river, going out and looking at sites um, on, 
on country down there. And so the story then, the fictional side of the story is that I create a daughter of Yadi and she's taken with a white family, the Bradleys, um, and, and it forms a friendship with the woman that she's working for, Louisa Spencer, who was a Quaker. I learned during my research that the Quakers came out in 1838 uh, from, with cho from chocolate and they come from chocolate money. And they, the two areas of work that they really focused on, what we wanted to focus on, were the rights of convicts and the treatment of convicts and Aboriginal people and equality of Aboriginal people. So I thought, this is fantastic. This character, I can, I can speak to why Louisa Spencer would want to be caring for the, the girl Wagadine um, during, this, during this part of the story and so forth. And so, you know, the bulk of the story is seen through the eyes of Wagadine, who is Yari's daughter, Wagga. Wagadine means dancer. Wagga Wagga for your listeners, many of your listeners uh, and yourself. Many, even, many, I don't know. Uh, the many crows, place of many crows. Well, actually it's not, Will. No, I thought that was my one bit of information I had up my sleeve. No, but this is great because actually that's what has been, it's been thought of and, and all the council collateral and Wagga Wagga council until literally I think a year ago or two years ago has been, it's been known as the place of many crows. But the word for crow is Wagan, W-A-G-A-N. So we could see how that got confused. But Wagga means to dance. So Wagga Wagga means, you know, a place of dance, place of many celebrations, which is fantastic. So the local council actually only in recent years has had to rewrite all their collateral around that and that's been accepted. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's evolution. That's how language evolves. That's also the part, well, that's also the part of um, language reclamation in this country right now and maintenance and so forth. So the girl Wagadine is called Wagga, Wagadine because she dances with the old women in Gundagai before she leaves and that's what some of that sustains her throughout the story so I don't want to give too many spoilers away but it's an it's really a story of heroism and homecomings and life so it touches on so many themes that I want to pick apart here and the first one is history in general like how history is told you know the story of Australia in particular is one of those things that I think, you know, as a country, I don't think I'm telling anybody, you know, something they don't know here, but we have had a really difficult time reconciling with the true history of Australia and, and what that really means in a way that other nations, I think, are doing a much better job of incorporating the true story of their country, you know, warts and all, not a black armband, mm -hmm. you know, view of our history, but an actual view of our history. And so it, so it interests me for a start how Gundagai embrace this story because it feels like as you said we're having this debate around statues and you've got these places named after these white explorers and of course we call them explorers and they're taught to us as school as being these great adventurers but we don't really get the full story about what that meant in the terms of colonization and the fact that these were people coming to a country that they you know that did not belong to them and then just dispossessing the original owners of that country from their land but to then start incorporating those stories of the First Nations people who were there at the time, how did this come about in Gundagai? Did the community embrace it? Was there a, how was this movement, how did these statues come to be? 
it's interesting, you know, well, it's it's like anything in life, in, whether it's you're in the classroom or you're in media or in your workplace or in a community, it, it takes a certain number of people with a certain amount of passion and a sense of leadership to drive anything. Some people will jump on the ship or, you know, and come with you and some won't. So what I understand, so I wasn't involved with the with the erection of the statue, but there, there is a, a steering committee that had both um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, so local, you know, Arnie Stoney Piper, um, Peter Smith, uh, who are Wiradjuri local people and elders driving that side of it, but also Miriam Crane is the, the manager of the Kutamunja Gundagai Tourism Office there, an enormous brain in terms of local history, just knows so much history um, on that committee as well. Ian Horsley, who was the descendant of someone who was saved by Yadi in, uh, on the night on the flood in the flood, he's on that committee as well. So it was really a community uh, effort, and there's a number of other, I think there's 12 people on that committee who drove um, the push to have that recognition local level. And if you, you know, your listeners can just, you know, Google the statues and they'll see what a turnout, the, what a turnout there was for that. Because there is pride in acknowledging resilience also in that town. And it's not to say that there isn't an underbelly of other things going on there. I haven't seen it, but, um, you know, every little town is a microcosm of the world as well. But my experience in terms of talking about the Great Flood is that people acknowledge that, you know, 59 lives were saved. So all the descendants of those people, you know, are living today because of these men. And also in 2018, they were granted posthumous, National Posthumous Heroism Awards. So the town got behind that as well. And I think for me, I had enormous anxiety leading up to the release of this book. I was quite sick for two months and I'm having blood tests and a whole lot of things because I didn't un, didn't realise what was going on, but it was actually the first, the first event I did for the book and it just dissipated. So it was around that book, around this book, which I love, but I love the book, not the anxiety. But what I realised was my, my great concern always is, as an author, like people are worried about getting bad reviews. I'm not. I'm worried about... I'm concerned about the people I write for and the people I write about. So my concern was on the ground in Gundagai, uh, in Brungle and in Wagga, that the local mob were happy with the way I told our, their story, our story. I was concerned about the language because I'm on my L plates and I'm learning and I wanted to make sure I got that right um, because I've publicly done something and it was completely wrong and I'll tell you about that. And then, um, and I was worried also in Gundagai, but as you say, like, you know, you, I'm writing a history that is both positive and negative. And I want to, the, this is their story. And so I had lots of feedback. I had made sure people read drafts and so forth, but there's zero point in me writing a story that disempowers anybody, um, in particularly my, my mob. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of history documented that, you know, I didn't make things up, that it's a historical fiction. And I tried to get into the mind of local people and so forth, and also the heroes. But the, the actions of the negative actions and the language used by white fellas about black fellas during that period of time, that's well documented. And that behaviour is well documented. So none of that should be new to people unless they're reading this story for the first time, which might be the case. 
Well, so this there's a lot of areas to deal with there. So firstly, the anxiety of it, the fact that you really do care. And it is such a complicated area because we, we can see it with all the, you know, attention still around Dark Emu. When people are talking about the First Nations story of Australia, yeah. um, you know, obviously white history, you know, history is written by the victors, as they say. And a lot of the time that was, you know, white Australia reframing, you know, what had happened through white Australia's eyes, you know, to make us the heroes of the story. And of course, a lot of Aboriginal history was passed down, not on paper, but through storytelling, through generations and in a different way. And so the idea that you need to like, serve a couple of masters that you know that you know that there is going to be eyes on this you know that people are going to read this not just for joy but there's probably going to be a few people who read it to try and trip you up or to say that you know you've got this completely wrong that's an extra layer of pressure that you, yes you're you're serving a couple of different masters but you also have an understanding there's going to be a range of critical eyes on this book all coming from different perspectives whether they be the descendants of the people you're telling the story about through to the, you know, the right-wing media who are looking for some sort of hook for a story because they know they can get some, you know, clickbait by putting your name in a, you know, a misleading headline about the book. So was the anxiety about all of those things or just about representing the people that you're telling the story about or was it about something else, you know, completely separate to that as well? Uh, I, I, I've stopped having anxiety about right-wing media. So I had a good dose of that about a decade ago. <laughs> and I'm working on a re, I'm actually literally yesterday and today working on, an, on a, uh, a new edition of Am I Black Enough For You? Because 10 years has gone by by now and, and so much has happened. But no, the anxiety is really about, you know, I'm late in my career now. That was my 18th book. So I, I'm not too concerned about speaking events and that, like that because I've done all that. It was really about this book they all matter, but this one really matters because while the story has been told in, in various formats, nothing, it hadn't been told in a way that gave voice to Wiradjuri people at that time. It hadn't been told in a way, and I only see this now, like now in hindsight, and it's all gone and I'm hearing, I'm hearing how people are reading it. Um, it hadn't been told in a way that would reach a, a mass audience. And by mass audience, I say we moved 10,000 books out of the warehouse in two days. And so it's been read by book clubs all around the country and so forth. And so it's so it's the first time and in a way that is, you know, we hate these labels, commercial fiction, but it, it's in Big W and Kmart and Target. And interestingly, big, you know, and it's got no English on the cover. For the first time in, in Australian commercial history, it's publishing history, it's got only Aboriginal language on the cover, which completely pushed the boundaries in Australian publishing. And, I, and Big W said to, asked me to write a letter to their staff explaining why they should be selling this book, right? In a nice way. Well, they were selling it anyway. And I said to them, and you might have to edit this out. I don't know if it's, you know, whatever. But now for your, now your information, I said to them, you know, my family shop, my friend shop, everyday Australians shop there. This is a story for everyday Australians. Because we have to stop thinking that stories about Aboriginal people are for Aboriginal people, right? We have to stop thinking because they're not, it's not enough of us to, to sustain a publishing industry, I can assure you. And we're still, we're still nurturing reading audiences, you know, because 
because singing, dancing, painting, performing, we've been doing that since the beginning of time. But we've only been publishing on mass for a few decades, right? So we're still nurturing our own audiences. And also we have to stop thinking about Australian history, you know, anything about Australian history involves blackfellas is, is Aboriginal history. It's not. Everything from the moment that flag was planted at possession point in 1770, I think it was, that was the beginning of Australian history. We didn't massacre ourselves. We didn't poison the waterholes. We didn't write the policies and legislation that removed kids and that, you know, um, created this process of assimilation. That's Australian history, but you'll often hear about, oh yes, that's Aboriginal history. It's not. That is history, as you mentioned before, like that's history we all need to embrace um, and own the good bits and the dark bits. That Because my view with this book also is I want people to walk away with a greater understanding of our shared history. Because I, be I believe, I'm glass half full always, but I do believe that when we understand where we've come from as a nation, as individuals which you know make up a nation, it's it's easier to understand and accept and embrace and talk about why we're in a certain place today and only then can we move forward and until we do that until we can embrace all of that you know we're still going to be taking these baby steps that I quite frankly frust frustrate first nations peoples i i couldn't agree with you more so firstly i see nothing but upside in us embracing our history yes there's going to have to be some difficult things we reckon with but there's these difficult things that we reckon with that will be able to shape the world that we're now in in a better way. But also we unlock this, you know, 60,000 year history of the First Nations people of Australia, which is full of, until the white people arrive, full of quite a lot of awesome stories, you know, in its own right. Like you said, it's not, you know, all tales of woe. They tend to start around 1770 where things really did not work out as well. So, Firstly, um, I, one of the things I like to admit on this show is because I think it's important to admit your own, you know, lack of knowledge in these areas. When Scott Morrison got in trouble recently for um, talking about no history of slavery in Australia, I didn't judge him as harshly as other people because it was only a couple of years ago that I really discovered the history of slavery in Australia. Because when I was at high school, it just wasn't something that was taught to us in history lessons at all. So I just never really had a sense of the fact that there was slavery in Australia. And it wasn't until I was an adult and found out about it and went and did some reading of my own that I found out that there was actually quite a complex, you know, it might have looked different to what we imagine American slavery, but there was certainly a history of slavery in Australia and it continues in a lot of ways in, in different areas. But I had to do that myself. And I think that I, what I like to say to people out there is don't be like me and say, oh, I didn't get taught at this at school. I wish I got taught this at school because there is information out there now where you can go and find this stuff out yourself. You can yeah. do your own research, as the anti-vaxxers like to say, but in this case, it's a, it's a good thing to do. And I think that this book, I think the reason it's doing so well in a way is I think there is an amazing thirst now mm -hmm. from some people who are saying, oh, no, we have to go out there and we have to find these stories ourselves. We have to be the ones who get proactive about reading about this in our book group or, you know, getting this novel and reading it myself and soaking up these stories and learning more about the true history of Australia because I can't rely on the system to provide it for me. Because a couple of things there. Thank you for that. It was great to hear all of that, agree with all of that. I do need to say, though, in terms of Scott Morrison, he's the Prime Minister of the country. 
Maybe. I, know. I, I, agree. I absolutely agree with that. Maybe. Like if you're in the job, you need to be across you know, this. I'm more talking. You need yeah. right. No, I agree. So I think you need to understand. <laughs> you're not the prime minister of the country. So you, you get a leave pass on that. But that's one thing. And secondly, yes. All yeah, but you know what? I'm also a social commentator, like of sorts, who, you know, prides himself as being someone who, you know, thinks that an embrace of the real history of this country would be a positive thing for this country. And so the fact that 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 was a hole in my knowledge. I just don't want to be here no. pontificating like I'm a perfect person in this arena because I am absolutely not. Okay. But what I meant was... If, yeah, Scott Morrison's you, a prick. And no, that's fine. I get that. That's had, okay. but, had also, but had you also said in a podcast at that point, something like that, you would have been crucified anyway. But I think we expect that whoever the leader is to have yes. a knowledge of the history of the country that they lead is my point. Okay. No, the next, fair point was I have people all the time oh my lord who are the same age as me well you know we didn't learn that at school these are educated people been to university across different sectors I'm going yeah right okay so Coral Dargan's down there at the state library the GOM has got stuff on 24 you know all year round the Queensland Museum's in the whole floor so then I TV every every regional town has a you know has an Aboriginal show or a community radio station so there is no excuse right in terms of get follow Indigenous X on Twitter so there's lot there's no excuse for you not for people not to learn in in the comfort of their own space because obviously there's things that are challenging and people don't may, might want to go to a panel discussion on the Uluru statement but you know you can get a kid's picture book on it these days so there's so many ways to engage and learn in in ways that make we've made it so easy for people to learn um, that there really is no excuse so um, absolutely right I do a call to action I do, you know, it's coming up to NADOC week, still surprise people are ringing me now. I'm booked for the next couple of years, but I'm like, what can we do? What can we do? I go, it's so easy. You can, if you're in a book club, set First Nations books for the next 12 months, if you will. Buy a book and give it to that racist uncle. Everyone's got one. You know, the one at the barbecue that's always got the bad joke. Give him growing up Aboriginal in Australia or, you know, give him a picture book if that's the thing. Write a cheque. If all you can do is donate, support a not-for-profit. A National Justice Project, for instance, you know, they they, they represent, you know, David Dungay Jr.'s family, Miss Dew's family, a whole lot of families through um, coronial inquests into Black deaths in custody. The Indigenous Literacy Foundation. Volunteer your time. Learn, participate, be part of. There's so many ways people can actually... Um, learn and participate. I've got a long list. I can finish that later if you like. I No, but I calls to action are always good because I think that, that a lot of people who listen to this show do listen to it with an ear on, I want to be involved in this in some way. You know, one of the greatest bits of knowledge that ever came out of this show for me, just personally for me, was I had Felicity Ward on the show way back when we started doing this seven years ago. And we were talking about what men could do in relation to be yeah, an actual good feminist. Not, not a, I've got a t-shirt that says I'm a feminist, but an actual genuinely you know, good feminist. And there was, we went through a list of, you know, 50 tips, some of them, you know, quite small everyday things. But the one that just stuck with me was try to consume as much female made art and entertainment as you do male made art and entertainment. Because just in the nature of doing that and hearing the stories that those they're telling, you will learn that that's your education right there. You know, just and I think it definitely applies when it comes to First Nations people as well. Is consume 
their art, their entertainment, listen to their stories. One of the greatest gifts that my parents gave me when I was a kid was this, you know, just beautiful illustrated book about the the rainbow serpent. It was just stories of the dream time. And, but as a kid, I mean, just because, you know, you, you're a kid, you're fascinated by animals and stories and these are just amazing stories it doesn't have to be some it's not some boring lecture about like you know black armband history and these are just incredible stories about you know nature and the world and how people saw the world and they it can be very enjoyable so just start by as you said supporting those things reading the stories hearing the stories listening to the it doesn't have to be some you know boring academic approach this is can be something that is very exciting and thrilling and, and beautiful to know the true history fun right yeah fun, fun. i think yeah. that's what we miss a lot yeah is we pitch it as being something that's like oh god i'm gonna have to go back and do homework and learn about blah 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 no this is fun you're gonna learn all these amazing stories and like you said these amazing pieces of language understanding why auntie or uncle is a term of you know reverence and authority you know in the you know in the community that the term deadly as a word mm -hmm. is one of the greatest words mm -hmm. you know in the entire english language i know it's shared between you know I aboriginal people and the irish but the it's irish, such a yeah. Yeah. right such a beautiful word like you know there are but that's okay that's part of the story right, right. part we, of the story is the integration of those cultures and we are we live in a global village you know, we understand that, you know, we focus on, you know, what's in our little circle and so forth, but we live in a global village and in my Wiradjuri language class, we're non-Indigenous people. Teachers who work on Wiradjuri country and want to be um, better teachers to their Koori students, but also be better informed by embedding, when they have to embed Indigenous voices and so forth. They, they did that in their own time. They did that in the school holidays because they wanted to participate and be better at what they do. And we are a very giving and sharing people, I might add. Oh, so this is, again, now this and is humble. To... And humble. <laughs> well, this is where we get to a really interesting area for me because... This, again, may be an oversimplification, but I I think it is thematic to your book and the story that you're telling in a way, which is despite the series of horrible injustices that have been done to Aboriginal people, there is a spirit of generosity for genuine reconciliation or to be part of a community or, to, or for forgiveness that is disproportionate to what could actually be expected like and i mean obviously within that there are individuals who would have in, entirely different experiences i don't mean to you know quantify it. but in general there is a spirit of generosity to you know despite what's been done to us we still want to be part of this is there a meaningful way we can be part of this we want to show you our stories we want to tell you about our history we want to include you as part of our world despite the fact that sometimes it feels like white australia doesn't want to include you know, Aboriginal Australia is part of their world. So talk to me a little about that. Am I wrong about that? Is that a real thing? I mean, again, everyone's different and I don't mean to, you know, specifically say, but it does feel like that to me. Well, I can only speak on behalf of myself. There's a couple yeah. of things there. So in terms of my writing, even forever, my writing has been about writing us into the literary landscape in a way where we haven't appeared where, so we haven't been re represented or, or we've been mis misrepresented. So that I've always gone, those kids at La Perouse, they've got to be in books. We've got to be in books where we're strong women with careers and we travel and we're political, but we like to shop and have sex and do all the other things that women do, right? Um, and But we also march and we're political. So 
I've always wanted to break down stereotypes based on the world that I've lived in, I live in, particularly in an urban setting. But in terms of your, in ter and I want to write books, I've also wanted to write books that are relevant to us to read. Now we want our young kids to read, they've got to see themselves on the pages. You know, I've been to communities where there's, you know, kids are being asked to read books that are, that are so irrelevant to their lives. And so they were irrelevant to my life and I was a grown up. And so I thought we need to be creating resources. That's one thing. With the, the, the idea of this generosity and participation and everything, I think what, when I went to learn my language at the age of 50, which should have been my first language, it changed my life in so many ways. It's very empowering to be able to greet people in, in Wiradjuri. I feel it's an act of sovereignty. Um, and I'm making a statement that, our, you know, everywhere you walk in Australia, English is a second language here. Mm -hmm. There's a first language and everywhere you walk, people, I always, publishers have been put on notice. I put them on notice earlier this year. Hey, don't ever imagine, don't kid yourself that you are published in the great Australian novel if it does not include the First Nations peoples, because it doesn't matter where that novel is set. It's set on the traditional lands of somebody. And that mention has to be there if that's all they do. So you can't have the great Australian novel without us in it. When I started learning my language, I was in a space with all these incredible elders who had far more difficult lives than I had, right? My mother was born on a Rambi mission in Cowra, lived under the act of protection, fed on rations, served out of a horse shed. My grandmother was in Kudamundra Aboriginal girls' home and so on. And these people are the most generous, forgiving, kind people you'd ever know, right? So I say I'm the angry generation because I'm angry because of the way our old people were treated. But, and I've written a novel on the stolen generations and I was so wild about, you know, reading, you know, I read the Bringing Them Home report, spent a lot of time going through documentation and it's, but it's the stories of reunion where you see people coming together and the love and the, and I think, so I, I could, you know, there is this desire for inner peace. I think the inner peace, you know, I'm not a forgiving person. I'm not a patient person. I know there's two of my top three flaws you know it's probably a lot more but anyway so I think the forgiveness thing that you know that you mentioned this in the generosity I've seen so much of that that that's made me want to be a better person that's made me want to live Wiradjuri values which are you know old people that they, they wouldn't be on Twitter running the same person down over and over and over and over and over and over again for three weeks or three months they would say something to you once Will and you either listen to them or you don't but they're not following you up about it, right? And I learned that. And so late in life, but it, it does give you a sense of peace if you can actually be part of a process where you can see light bulbs going on. And I've had so many people who may never have read a book by a black fella before, you know, people in Gundagai even that may never have read a book by a black fella or, or, or thought about it from our perspective. And, you know, they're baby steps. And, and it's frustrating that we have to, you know, when, when this country should be running towards that goal, but it is what it is, you know, and everybody's on a different journey. And, um, and I, my contribution is so small 
in terms of the body of work that's available, the 7,000, over 7,000 Aboriginal and Torres Islander writers and storytellers that have been indexed into Auslit. So I pride myself saying, I can find your book or a poem, a novel or a poem or a play or a kid's picture book or a song or something on almost any subject, right? So people used to say to me, why can't we read Henry Reynolds until an Aboriginal person writes a history book? And it's not about Henry Reynolds. It's about, well, hang on a minute. It's how we've been conditioned to think you can only learn history through a textbook. I said, our, our autobiographies are our textbooks. Our poetry are our history. We have theatre that talks about the 67 referendum and so forth. We need to shift the way we think we can, we, we learn because there are far more, and I, this is going to come out the wrong way, but there are far more enjoyable ways to learn history than sitting down to a textbook. And the reality is, I mean, I've got a PhD and I'm a professor of communications, but I, I write commercial fiction and historical fiction because the average academic essay is read by six people who are other academics. Yeah, six people who either you know, probably absolutely agree with what you're saying or are reading it to disagree with it. That's or reading, <laughs> or reading to see if they're in it. And my my employer's not going to be happy with this comment, but anyway. So I, I but I understand what you're saying is that is that advantage of making these stories accessible and entertaining and fun for people to dip into, like because. You know, once they read those stories, maybe there is a point where they want to go and read the academic studies as well. But you can't just expect somebody to jump straight to a, you know, a very straight history book or an academic study when, like, there's much better ways to get people interested in these things. Uh, so, but but it does rely on people giving access to the storytellers, right? Like, you know, if there's no access, if there's nobody saying... You know, here's a space for Aboriginal people to tell their stories. Here's a space for Aboriginal people to write or perform or, you know, like you said, dance. You know, those spaces have to exist so that people can access them. Like your podcast, you know. So it's interesting because I've been writing about this yesterday for the new, the updated version of the memoir about last year we had Share the Mic, right, where you know, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, which did lead to people, I will say, well, because oh, while well, we were talking about this, it lead to an absolute um, increase, like a skyrocketing sales in Australia for people in search of uh, race theory and books around in First Nations uh, stories and so forth. So one of the positive outcomes of that dreadful, um, uh, of George Floyd's passing, very public death, disgusting death at the hands of the police in Minneapolis in May of last year, was it did mobilise the world and it did turn the mirror onto Australia and say, oh, and this recognition, but yes, we've had, we've had a Black Lives Matter movement here for 30 years since the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody. But there was this spike in sales, white, like you would not believe, people reaching out, looking for a lot of race theory to understand the theory about how we how we can live in a society and allow this behaviour, um, and also the accessibility, as you mentioned. You know, we have a national curriculum. Teachers need to be embedding First Nations perspectives and so forth. So they're looking for ways to do that with scaffolding. And when I was in Gundagai, my my publishers came across, and they were, you know we're having dinner and after the event, and we're talking to locals and saying, you know what. This is the local pub. Every town has a Criterion Hotel, as it turns out. What, what, what do people want? What do people want next? What can we do? And this is the publishers asking. And, and uh, they're like, 
we want this story in schools. You know, it's not, you know, so this is a big book and thank you for reading it. And um, so we're doing a kid's version now of the flood so that kids in schools around the country can start seeing in their picture books Aboriginal heroes, Wiradjuri heroes and so forth. Don't forget at a time, we're talking about reconciliation, they went out and saved all these white lives at a time where they were, you know, effectively being moved off country, right? So I go, this is like an act of reconciliation. We've been, we've been carrying the load since, you know, before it was even a hashtag. And, um, and, we, and we'll do a middle grade reader as well so that, you know, everybody then from kindy through to getting into tertiary studies can know this story. And, you know, we've got Magabala books now. We've got the Black and White program through the State Library. We've got, um, I understand there's a new intern starting at UQP. The industry, the publishing industry is very, very slow in actually building capacity to create those spaces you're talking about. So we've got lots of stories to be published, but we really need to be having editors and publishers and people working in-house and that's been very slow yeah i so a, a, a guy has appeared on this podcast a couple of times who i absolutely love the work of is a young man by the name of Corey tut who runs deadly science and and you know he's his whole mission is to get you know science education into the hands of like you know first nations children and aboriginal children around the country but really just getting them interested in science but also just getting them books to be able to read, but even more powerful if those books that they are able to read are going to be written by Aboriginal people, like telling Aboriginal stories. That's really the the next step in that equation is not only just getting the books and the love of science in their hands, but you know the, the fact that they could pick up a book that is written by an Aboriginal person about the Aboriginal story around science. You know, Corey calls Aboriginal people the world's first scientists. And I think there's a brilliant, you know, book to be written there that hopefully in that same way well he's done it he's written he sent me he sent me the cover of something he's done and i've got the pages i haven't had time to read it so he's a powerhouse of inspiration and i go get her go get her and so i see the work that he does and i feel really hopeful about what's you know that future particularly in that space yeah he's he's someone who's literally putting the power in hands of that next generation of Aboriginal people and it's just yeah his work is inspiring I highly recommend people check out both the episodes he's done of this show but also just check out Deadly Science if you have some money to support Deadly Science I if you look there you go if you're looking for something practical to do that's that's a good practical thing you can do if you've got 50 bucks 100 bucks you can make an incredible difference to a whole bunch of remote kids having access to science and science books and learning to love to read books and you know, all those sort of things. So uh, you talked about when you were wrong publicly. You mentioned that and you said you were happy to talk about being wrong publicly. What, what, what was that? Well, when the book was, just before the book was coming out and there was lots of, you know, PR going on and people were messaging me everywhere about how to say the title. So I did this video. I'm over in my office at UQ. One take wonder. I think I'm just so different. <laughs> Put it on Twitter, put it on Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, everyone, every book club sharing yeah. it. People are texting me going, oh, yeah, I'm sitting in the car park. I'm practicing. Yeah, I've got the class doing it. Anyway, a day later, I'm driving along Kangaroo Point and Arnie Elaine Lomas, Bajaja, that's Uncle Stan Grant's sister because Uncle Stan Grant's the teacher of the language. Okay. Uh, and she's one of my teachers. She rings up, she says, yeah, Bob, I saw your video. You know you said it wrong. 
I was horrified. So all these people, and then of course, and I was like, I nearly drove off the road. I'm dropping all these F-bombs and I'm like horrified. And and I'm ringing, like I felt sick. I felt sick because for number one, because I'd done it wrong. Two, because people were now all practicing it in groups wrong. Three, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to disrespect the ancestors because people were, my brother's like, ah, it, I said deray and it's deray. My brother's like, ah, tomato, tomato. I get you, Mark. That's not my <laughs> That's not. That is very wrong. Anyway, and then I was ringing. I rang a couple of girls. Yeah, my in my cohort. <laughs> I mean, that's how you get place of many crows. You've had a place of many crows situation. That's how you get place of many crows. Landis, and you nailed it. That's right. Anyway, so. I ring, I ring, I'm, I'm quite distressed. I'm really upset with myself. And so, so this is the anxiety, right? The book's not out. This has made it worse. It's like, you know, need to, you haven't even started the book tour and you're stuffing it up, right? And so I ring one friend, I FaceTime and I go, uh, and I'm in the group and I'm going, and my friends can see that I'm just losing my shit, right? I'm just going, oh my God. And honey, Elaine rang me and I've got it wrong. What should I do? And so I'm another video and I can't do that. Anyway, so I ring, Rebecca Connolly in Tumut and I go oh did you see how I said it she said yeah I go how would you say it she goes yeah I say it this way I went oh she goes but maybe it's just your accent right <laughs> and then I ring Helen and I'm going oh my god did you see but JJ I got it wrong and she said Anita you're learning what should have been your first language at the age of 50 you're gonna make mistakes and then that just relieved me of that pressure but it also became a really good talking point then because then, of course, it, we had the Sydney Writers Festival and all these other Brisbane Writers Festival and all the all the interviewers had all been practising the wrong way. So they were <laughs> up. Yeah, actually, no, that's not it. And then I'm telling the audience, you can see everyone, and I tell them the story and they're holding it. Oh, how embarrassing. And I, then I go, yeah, but I should have been, I'm learning my first language. And they're all nodding going, yeah, that's right. And so actually it was a good, it was good that it happened because it actually opened up that conversation about how, you know, in 2019, we, the United Nations had the, the International Year of Indigenous Languages as a way to reclaim and recognise and support um, Indigenous languages the world over. And so successful was it that now in 2022, we're going to, they're going to start the decade of Indigenous, the world Indigenous languages so i mean these are good conversations to have so my mistakes become um a lesson for all i like that so i ask people on this show if they have a life philosophy of any kind that feels like a bit of a life philosophy in a nutshell there but do you have a broader life philosophy is there some sort of motto or credo or general sort of life philosophy by which you operate i don't know if you're old enough to remember will in 1990s 80s 70s 90s so you said these desk calendars and you'd flip the page over then I have yeah, a, of course. You're old enough to remember that? Yeah. yeah. So they, they had this, and I was in Canberra working and I had my little desk calendar and I flipped the thing over. And on one day, and I've never forgotten this, uh, and it said, it said, don't think about failure. Think about all the opportunities you miss when you never try. And I never, ever forgot that. So every time I think, you know, I, I don't know, lots of people in my world have imposter syndrome and we about particularly in writing, but everything. And so I always have to re remind myself of that literally on a daily basis. If you don't try, 
you know, and it's that with running, I'm a runner. It's the same thing. It's not about, I don't think about the finish line anymore. It's about the, the it's getting to the start. It's getting up, getting out of bed, starting. Because really, you just got to put one foot in front of the other to get to the end. I say that for 42 <laughs> kilometers. But, uh, but, you know, so it's about, you know, it's about, yeah. Don't well, tell me about the psychology of running because that I, I do find that fascinating. I used to love to run and then... In my early 30s, I developed uh, osteoarthritis in both my hips, which has meant that I've had to like stop doing pretty much any because I'm bone on bone in my hips. So you can't sort of run or jump or do those sort of things that, you know, exacerbate that. And I really do miss running. I used to love running, particularly as a touring stand-up comedian. Running was often the easiest way to exercise. You, You get into a town, they might not have a gym, the hotel might not have some sort of exercise thing, but you can just put on your sneakers and run five kilometers one way and five kilometers back in the opposite direction. And you've, you know, you've cleared out your day a little bit. What is it about running for you that, uh, you know, what, what role does it fill in your life? Uh, by and large, it's mental health. So um, I know the days that I don't run uh, are not as happy as the days I'm not as productive um, as the days that I do run. And I didn't start running, Will, until I was 45, I think. Okay. That's probably the way to do it. Like, you know, don't fuck up your hips first like me. Just get into it late. Yeah. And so I moved to, and like you, I've, I've run all around the world. And I like when I travel for work and so forth, it's free. All you need is a good pair of shoes. You get to see things. You know, it, it's a great way to start the day, you know. And I, but I started running seriously when I got to Brisbane. I, I hadn't joined a gym. I started running and, and it becomes addictive. And then I, you know, ran my first, run and then the second race and then ran ran the my first was Uluru the marathon up at Uluru when I was just the week before I turned 50 or something and never doing that again never doing that again and then three months later did the New York marathon never doing that again never doing that again and then I did the Gold Coast marathon really never doing that again but (laughs) you know you'll know as a runner like only people who run get get the the you know, the endorphin rush. And it's also this sense of self-righteousness because you finish on a thing <laughs> and you're like, we are so much better than everyone. I run with these amazing people. We are so much better than everybody else because they're still in bed and like, we just run like 15 kilometers and now we can have a really nice breakfast and guilt-free. And uh, really, there's a huge... Like right across Australia now in recent years, we've had the deadly runners. There's so many more Aboriginal people running. There's groups everywhere. And um, I really do it for my mental health. And I I feel the fittest and the healthiest I've ever been. And I'm 53, you know, in August. Are you a person who thinks when you run? Are you a person who like only thinks about running when you run? Do you run with like headphones? Like I'm interested in like in a, sense of that experience what is it okay so i do think um when i've got music on i think i script you know if i've got arguments i script those um i think about when i'm doing long distances i'm thinking about um you know i thought about kathy freeman a lot when i was training for the marathon um interestingly in recent weeks um, I've started months. I've started listening to podcasts while running. Listen to you interviewing Shelley Ware while I was up at Yapoon last week, which was great because one of the things is it actually takes your focus off the actual running. Um, I'm hearing things that are inspiring me and I'm hoping that I can remember when I get home. But also um, I seem to run a bit faster when I'm listening to a podcast as opposed to 
um, running to the same soundtrack, which is basically the 80s, over and over <laughs> and because of my, and of course, my theme song, which they played as they crossed the line at Uluru at the marathon was, is Ice Ice Baby, so on Ice Ice, Ice Baby, so um, yeah, I, I, for many years, though, my running, was, old, uh, old Vanilla Heist, Dr. Vanilla Heist, and so when, when I started running, though, I don't know, maybe because I've got older, maybe I'm wiser, that a lot of that running time was actually like just thinking getting the crap out of my head mm -hmm. yeah uh so i'm interested in uh, what you say about um the idea of uh, running around uluru mm -hmm. and um thinking about kathy freeman and the role that sports plays in our connection with aboriginal australia because i'm a huge afl fan and like you know, i think 12 or 13 percent of the afl players are um, are Aboriginal players and just some of the greatest, you know, AFL footballers of all time have been Aboriginal players. But the game itself, you know, much like Australia in a broader sense, has constantly been reck reckoning with its relationship with, you know, the Aboriginal players. Are they treated the same as the other players? Even sometimes in a positive way that their skills are, the things they do on the field are described in terms like magical instead of, yeah, in the way that you'd describe a white player is that they'd trained very hard to do that or it was a level of skill that it, it is. So the way that we've spoken about Aboriginal players and then, of course, the most famous example of it in the AFL, which was the way that Adam Goods, who was one of the greatest players in the history of the AFL and just somebody that I, my dream philosophy guess. We have, Adam and I have emailed about it. He's not kind of ready at the moment, but I, he's on my pinup board as like the, the person I probably more than anybody else would love to sit down and have a conversation with, you know, for this show. But, um, you know, the game of AFL has not reckoned with the disservice that it did to Adam Goods and his reputation and how it let him be treated by like, you know, the general viewing public who go to the AFL. Um, what, when you look at Australia's relationship, like with Aboriginal people and how we view them through sport, I, I just thought about Kathy Freeman. I thought about Adam Goods, like, you know, can you talk to me a little bit about that from your point of view? It's interesting because yesterday I wrote a chapter about Adam and Kathy how Adam was crucified and Kathy is Australia's darling. I've written about, I've written a book about Kathy Freeman, about a character wanted, a girl wanted to be Kathy Freeman. And I just need to say a couple of things around Adam first, because Adam is a friend of mine. I'm an ambassador for his foundation with Michael the Go Foundation. Um, I, you know, saw what happened unfold to a friend, but to a brother, um, to an elite sportsman, to an Australian of the year. I watched that in through so many different lenses. And one of my calls to action uh, that I always put up uh, is, is to say to people, if you haven't watched the final quarter, whether or not you are an AFL fan, watch that with your family, with your friends, or watch it with someone you know didn't understand that what happened through the media and on the ground was actually race-based. Because that part, sitting with and watching that with someone is the challenge that I ask people to do, because we have to do it every day. And I watched a preview of that, of the long, of the final quarter by myself in the producer's studio, because I needed to see it because of aspects of commentators who were in there. And what was interesting was, you know, you know, we, we'd been part of setting up, you know, the I Stand With Adam thing back in the day, but I felt unsafe in that theatre just watching that crowd mentality. And I thought, I'm not even there. 
unsafe in a space where that the violence of racism vocally was so loud, actually loud and allowed to happen. I thought I felt unsafe and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed until the, the, it was over. So I think that hasn't been resolved absolutely has not been resolved. I think there is still a lack of understanding around that. Um, I, I, I haven't been invited back to Victoria to give a keynote since, but in Reconciliation Week 2019, and I, I put this, I showed a, a, the clip, it hadn't been shown, it hadn't premiered in Sydney, but I showed a clip from the, from the film. And I said, the reality is at that time, 18 teams in the AFL were in Victoria, were Victorian. Those commentators that, oh, I don't even rattle off their names because I want to give them that kudos, they were all Victorian based. So a lot, a lot of that problem is with a Victorian audience, right? Those commentators on TV and in the media. So I think there was a huge responsibility for, for Victorians specifically to step up. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, so he's, Adam's left that game that he gave so much, so much to, you know, won the Brownlow medal twice and so forth, an absolute role model for young Australians of all denominations, all backgrounds, right? And older Australians. Um, and it's it's just appalling that he's, his last years in the game have been tainted by, by the underbelly or the outsiders, it's not even underbelly, of racism in this country. And then we have, these, we have this extraordinary moment. And this is also about how we define Australian, Australian sports people and Australian history, right? So that would, some would call that, well, that's Aboriginal history because it was dark. Cathy Freeman, carried that torch into the stadium, looked amazing in white lycra, no one else could pull that off, managed the, the lighting of the cauldron when it didn't work, but did it with grace and dignity. I, so just quickly on that before you go, go on with the rest of it, because I was commentating that live. So Adam and I were doing a lot because the ABC had the rights of, so we had the rights to the 2000 uh, Olympics broadcast. And so people might not understand this. Basically, the ABC got the rights in Australia, which meant that Triple J also had the rights to broadcast, you know, events. Adam and I would go out to the stadium, we would broadcast from the Olympic Stadium, interview Olympians. But on the opening ceremony night, we were commentating that. And that moment where it looked like the flame, the, like the, you know, it was going to fuck up. It got stark. Like, I just remember losing my mind. I was literally yelling, no, this is not happening. And like, I was just the whole time thinking, not only this is embarrassing for Australia, but this is our star. Like, she's got to, like, A, she's out here doing this incredible thing when she's got to run the most important race of her entire life, like in a few days. Like, already a huge thing for her to be here but we're gonna fuck it all up for her like to handle that moment alone was just amazing you don't remember this but i was in the studio with you that night i died i that's a long time ago yeah. so i was with you with bob down another story yeah. anyway um but so she does that she was just a star the entire time and then of course she goes and wins the race the pressure of the country one hundred and ten thousand people in the stadium absolutely i believe that that was a unifying moment for our nation you know that every she was Australia's darling, and so there are there. You know what's the difference between the athletes? What's the difference between AFL fans and so forth? So I think interestingly though, you asked the question about sports. We're often always seen through a sporting lens. I think that's changing slowly. I mean, I do a lot of work with teachers in, in schools, and they say every time we ask our students to do an assignment on a famous Aboriginal person, they're always a sports people, right? And I said, well, that's fine. I said, because we can marry sports and literature because we have books on Aboriginal, you know, 
jockeys and footballers in every coat and swimmers and surfers and runners and, you know, weightlifters. So we can marry literature and sports, but quite often we're seen, you know, to be, it's, we're good at sports um, and, you know, what else are we good at? Because the, the excellence bar isn't expected of us um, very much at all. We're, we're actually spoken about in, as a, in, a, in a deficit model all the time. Um, that doesn't bother me as much because I'm a bit of a sports person too. But, and I think that is changing. And I think, I think... I, I, look, even the opportunities out of sports, I think, are changing a bit now. You see, like, I mean, at least there's commentators around sports who are Aboriginal, there is football shows around sports. But I just, like Tony Armstrong, who's a previous guest on this show, is just such a good example of a guy who played AFL football, went into the media as a sports journalist, but now is on the weekly and hosting the project and like isn't just limited in the old days where there would be like, no, this is what you do. You're the you know, the, the sideline commentator. You're, you're our one Aboriginal person. You're the sideline commentator and that is your only role and you're never going to be considered for anything other than that role. Whereas like I look at someone like Tony and just how he's moving from project yes. to project, completely evolving what he's known for and how he's known. And it just gives me that so you go, oh, well, things are changing at least a bit in that in that regard. It is, and we love seeing him on the screen for a number of reasons. Gorgeous. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, but he's so, he, he has got the personality yeah. and the skill and the knowledge to actually do that from, you know, from, um, you know, from different panels and couches and so forth. But then when you were talking, I was thinking, it, it, it's like with me, is it using the same person everywhere? There yeah. should be a rotating shift of dozens of people. Yeah. So yeah. I get no, asked, no, no disrespect to Tony or you. Not at all. Not at all. There should be a bunch all. of other Tony or you's. Yeah. There, there's no, not yeah. at all. It's about saying, like, I get asked to do anything related with books and publishing, and I, it's exhausting. And, and so the thing is, that's why the industry, all industries are responsible for nurturing and so forth. It's not Tony's job to, to on top of everything, to mentor a whole lot of people. And, um, yeah, so I was thinking, and the other thing is, so I'm getting lots of, you know, I do lots of keynotes and so forth. And this week there's been like 10 different things coming for something two weeks away. And I'm booked a year ahead. So, and I've sat to these people or say to my agent and say, you know, we have to work 52 weeks of the year, not just NAIDOC week and not just reconciliation. And their companies, their, their, the corporates and whoever they are, they, their staff need to see a commitment to, you know, uh, their wraps or whatever they're doing every day not just during those two weeks of the year just remind yeah no i agree i mean the like the it always starts with i mean one of the things that i mean again i, I hate to like, sometimes you can only talk from your own perspective so i have a small part of the world this this show is a very small part of the giant entertainment world but one of the things that i'm conscious about is hopefully like having a good range of firstly you know first nations voices that come through the show but that they're not like, it's not like, oh, it's January. It's Australia day. Let's get somebody on. Don't put somebody in a position where the only thing they can talk about is, you know, the, the, the worst or most difficult part of the experience, you know, put them in positions where, like you said, you don't always have to speak to the issue at hand. You can just be part of the general conversation, whatever that general conversation happens to be. So, uh, yeah, it's, okay. So anyway, I love talking to you and we've already talked for an hour and like I have not asked any of the 
uh, standard questions yet. So I'm going to get to at least some of those standard questions and see where they take us. So I'm going to start with this one that normally comes a little bit later, but it refers to what you were talking about before around failure. I have, as close as I have to a motivational saying on my desk is a little bit of a metal and it has inscribed in it, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? And the way that I interpret that for my own purposes is, if I was guaranteed of success in something, what would I love that thing to be? What would, you know, you guaranteed that the thing is very, very successful. What is it? So can you answer that question? What is the thing that if you were guaranteed of it being successful that you would like to attempt? Do you ask your other guests this? Because I don't think I've heard this question. All right. oh, it's a new question since oh. Shelley was on. So I, I started right. doing... I started doing this one at episode 200. So it's been in the roster for about like 20 or 30 episodes. But yeah, so it wasn't wasn't on that episode. Okay. So this might sound, because I'm not prepared, this might sound odd. But only because I see how difficult it is in another life, if I was guaranteed to be successful, I'd be a mother. So, because I'm not yeah, maternal, that's... and I look at, and I'm not maternal, yeah. and I look at how difficult it is to parent, and it's different to when so I, I was a, I was a difficult child <laughs> parent, and today it's a completely different world, and I think you know what I think I would have been a good mother, would have been a you know a fun mother, but I don't know that I would have been a, like a proper mother, and I think, it's, <laughs> I think a successful parent is almost impossible because you know there's there's no guarantee so i think in another it is life, impossible it's absolutely impossible well, because it is it, such a random set of circumstances and like you know biologies and yeah. different personalities and all those things you're lucky if you just don't fuck it up completely i think is what being a parent is so are you a parent no and i think maybe for similar reasons is that i just don't think yeah. that that's where my strengths lie yeah well, I always think, I, I think it would be, I think that I would probably be an okay parent. Lots of other people have observed they think I would be an okay parent, but I see the qualities that I think good parents possess and I'm not sure that they're necessarily my strength. Well, remember I told you my top, in my top three uh, flaws were um, impatience and I don't forgive people. So like already bad parent, you've got to parents forgive and they're patient. So. I cry way too easily to be a parent. I think my kids would lose so, so much confidence in me so early because every time they hurt themselves, every time something went wrong, I would cry so much more than they would cry. And then the idea, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about some argument he was having like with his 15-year-old you know, daughter and I was just like, man, if my daughter talked to me like that, all I would do is just cry. Like I would just be like, you're so mean. <laughs> like I'm just going to go and daddy's crying in his room again because you were mean to him probably not a good idea for you to breed then <laughs> my hips are too bad i don't want to pass on these genetics so i like that though that's a really good answer to that question what is a um trait like a you know a empathy compassion um uh, patience whatever however you might want to define it that you would you see in other people that you would love in yourself oh absolutely patience is number one I, I I hear myself, particularly particularly with the people you love the most, that you wouldn't 
be impatient with your colleagues or even your your, your friends. So I'm really uh, I'm a very, terribly impatient person about everything, and that is something I don't know how to work on that. And that was something I would like to improve. Absolutely. So any of your listeners have any clues, please send them to me. I'm sure there's somebody who's got a clue there for me. You talked about resolving your relationship with right-wing media. Now, if you're saying that you're impatient. I don't think well, I said no, resolved. I think. Okay. What did, what did you say? And how is your relationship? about what right-wing right. media say about me. And so as a person, you know, who's, who lists patience as not being one of her virtues, how difficult is that? Because there must be just an immediate reaction in you to want to, like, respond to provocation in regard to that. Or are you just at a point now where you just, like, just let it slide oh, by? Oh, Will, I think I've matured somewhat in the last decade. And I just ignore it. <laughs> Do you know how they, they would, people have told you this, as they've told me. Don't read the comments. Uh, I just, <laughs> and anybody that tags me into any crap that I don't need to know about, it, particularly if it's about me, I, I, I block them too. If you're that, yeah, you know, exactly. Stop just it. Just don't even. They don't think you're doing a favour. I just go. I don't want to. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. So I've I've just come become very good because you know at the end of the day, you know what it's about. It's about your own mental health. It's about right. being able to get through every day. I want to be productive when I'm at the university with the students. I want to demonstrate excellence in everything that I do. And I can't do that if I'm spending my time getting all torn up inside by some um, underqualified, under-researched, not even journal, let's say opinion columnists, writing things that are, you know, just taking away my energy so I don't even engage anymore what is the point of those things do you think do you do you have a sense that the people who write from that perspective genuinely believe what they say or is it just the pantomime of you know provocative contrarian media and you know the resulting clicks and reads and ads and all those sort of things do you get a sense that these are people who you know, just genuinely have a completely different opinion of how the world is or is there a, a level of this is the game that we are playing? I think it's a little bit of both. I think because it's still, it still sells, you know, it still sells. It still, it still speaks to an audience in this country that crave that kind of BS. Look at me being all proper, not swearing. Um, <laughs> but I also think, I think, I think that, to maintain a level of like ongoing um, hatred for whatever the group and for whatever the group is, you have to to maintain that. You have to feel it. It can't just be can't just be for the paycheck. I don't think there has to be a level of I absolutely believe this. That's my own personal view. I don't think you can maintain that level of um, of viciousness without believing it at some point. So let's let's say then that there's that percentage of people who exist, the sort of people who believe these heinous things or well, these things that I consider to be at least that. I guess I'm speaking from my own perspective as well. But if you listen to this show, you fucking get it. You understand what's going on. Um, maybe we can't change their minds at all. Um, do you believe that you can change the minds of even these people or is it more about the idea of 
uh, the people in between who, you know, are open to hearing these other stories? I think it's the people on the fence. I think there are people that we can get over to our side quite easily with a spirit of generosity um, and like, you know, giving them different ways to engage and so forth. I think there's people that will never change, that will go to their graves believing their way is right. And that's absolutely fine because you and I are going to our graves believing our way is right. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, I do I do think there is a middle ground of people that are, and if we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement for a moment, I mean, I was in Queensland for that march and for the first time in my life, I mean, Queensland hasn't got a great rep reputation at all between black people and police and also for turning out for black, you know, march like this. There was like 30 plus thousand people. I'd never seen anything like it in the middle of COVID. And I stood next to people and it reminded me I marched in Sydney, Hyde Park with, you know, 150,000 people um, during the Gulf War and standing next to people who I know would never be in my in my space at any other time. But we stood there as humans. It's part of a global village with, with the same view on this matter. And so when you when I saw that last year, I had this real glimmer of hope that there is a shift in the way that people think about First Nations Australians and our inequality and the way we're treated from the leadership down. So I think there will always be people that read the Herald Sun that will buy into that. And that speaks more about their own existence because everybody's always got to have someone else to put shit on. You've got to blame someone for my predicament. We'll blame the blacks, we'll blame asylum seekers, we'll blame anybody who's not a middle-class white heterosexual person, man. Right. So I mean, the good news is that we can blame people, though. It's the thirty people who own half of the shit in the world. Like they're very easily identified, guys. Like the, the enemy is not the people who. The enemy is not the people who have nothing. Like the people who you know are going, I have nothing, and these other people who have nothing. They're not the problem. Look at that guy who's got everything. He's not paying any tax. That's How about the that logic. guy? There's the logic. Exactly. Look it's okay. You're allowed to have an enemy. You've just picked the wrong enemy. Absolutely. It's it's unbelievable. There's no logic. When I read through, you know, when I read through the commentary um, on a blog that led to a court case that I was in around this. I couldn't believe the stuff I was reading. It was so, there was no logic. It was riddled with um, language that was antiquated and blatantly racist. And I would get emails from random people calling me every N-word under the sun. In one minute, you're, I'm an N-word. And then I'm like, but I'm not really black. So, um, yeah, anyway. Uh, what... Happy question. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sorry, but the next one is definitely not a happy question. Uh, what do you think happens when we die? I don't know what's happening to you, but I, <laughs> I don't know where you're going. Uh, I believe my spirit will go back to my ancestors in Wiradjuri country. Uh, I believe my father will be there too because they fully embraced him when he came to Australia. And... Um, yeah, I believe, yeah, that's what I believe. I believe my mum will be there when she goes and all those people that are giving me wisdom now and as I got older, I wished I trusted my, trusted them when I was younger and I wouldn't have got as much trouble as I did. Listen to me. Trouble. Trouble at a girls' convent school didn't take much, can I tell you that? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, either that or I'm going to come back as a pigeon and shit on everybody. <laughs> So with the idea of like, 
in a spiritual sense, going back to country and being re- reunited with, you know, the important people in your world and your life. Is that a, how does that actually manifest? Is that just an idea or is there a sense that those people are still there in that, like, I mean, is that, is that a story or is it a, an actual idea? Like, do, do people believe that like the spirits actually exist in that area still like that you know there is some sort of connection i don't i mean I, i'm not sure, sure exactly what i'm asking yeah, but i'm asking no, I don't, it's a belief you know, some people say they go to heaven yeah yeah or down south they go to hell it's a bit hotter or that some people <laughs> like, i believe that I, my spirit will go back to where country from where yeah. i come and that and you know so there'll be a lot of people that believe that there will be people who don't believe that but i think when we talk about when we farewell our people we we send them back you know, to to the ancestors who were waiting for them. That's how we speak. That's how I believe. I like my siblings might believe something completely separate because we don't talk about it. And of course, we were raised also in a very Catholic household. My mother set up it's, the Aboriginal Catholic ministry in Australia. So, was there a point in your life where, like, the Catholic religion was something that you subscribed to? Yeah, absolutely. I went to a convent school. I wanted to be a nun when I was a kid because I thought I'd have my own room if I was a nun. <laughs> then I wanted to be Ginger from Gilligan's Island because I thought she was really sexy. And then I wanted to be an air hostess because I thought that was glamorous. But yeah, the con, yeah, what raised Catholic, Catholic schools and so forth, suppressed Catholic sexuality, all that, you know, all the shame that comes with the Catholic Church and everything. Um, and then I'm going to go to, you know, and I'm, then I'm old enough to make my own decisions. And of course, I've become one of the people who criticise the Catholic Church, which is quite difficult because my mother welcomed two popes to Sydney um, and dined with the Pope in the Vatican. And I carry, I do carry rosary beads that she gave me in my bag when I travel um, that were blessed by the Pope. Um, yeah, so that was very, you know, it was very big in my life. My father was Austrian. They're more about tradition than actual religion. But he was like, you go to, you do what your mother says, you go to church and so forth. And he had the last rites three times when he was dying. And um, I think lots of people on their deathbed start to think about mm. what's next for me. But yeah. That's about when I'd like to start thinking about it too. <laughs> I think on my deathbed, that's fine. <laughs> Up until that point, it doesn't need to be something that I worry too much about. Um, do you care about uh, legacy, being remembered? Like, is are you are you interested in the idea that something that you create will live on, you know, after you? I think for me, uh, these are good questions. I think for me, my 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 books are my legacy. You know, so that's that's it. I don't have. I think some people look at their children as their legacy, but we've established that I was never going to be a good mother. So. Um, I think I think my my yeah my books my stories and the contribution that I've made to Australian publishing um, would be my legacy. I hope. Is that okay? Yeah, there's no right or wrong answers. It's it's, it's not a test. I'm, I'm not going to score you at the end. I'm very competitive. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed. Which is not a variety <laughs> value at all. Have, have have I done well? <laughs> Please. <laughs> I want Radio Mike to send me a report. <laughs> a little at the end, say how good, say what a great job you did. Congratulations. Well done. Um, I, uh, If you could uh, have any skill in the world, so you just wake up one morning, you, you don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You can just absolutely do this thing, you know, 
at a very high level, what is that skill you would like to have? I'm a big fan of karaoke and I would love to see. Tell people what karaoke oh, is. Okay. I know, but, okay. but so not everyone. You all know what karaoke know. is. And so karaoke is the, the Aboriginalized term for karaoke. So in New South Wales, a generic term. So if I see an Aboriginal person in the street, you don't say, or oh, we're out at a function, you don't say you Aboriginal, you go, you curry. So we have terminology, our own terminology. So in New South Wales, curry, Guri, Northern New South Wales, Kuri, K-O-O-R-I-E in Victoria, uh, Nungar in South Australia and so forth. And so we call it karaoke. And in the 90s at the Covent Garden Hotel down in Chinatown, Thursday night was the place to be for karaoke. And I did, you know, a bit of material girl and so forth, but I can't sing. And it's the one thing I would love to do. Oh, also play the guitar. <laughs> sing and play the guitar because you know when you're at a party you know blackfellas are singing around everyone did one guitar and everyone's singing johnny cash and it's great <laughs> yeah i'd love to be able to sing sing oh yeah uh, final question. Yep. This has been great, by the way. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you doing this. It's been uh, really lovely to catch up. It's nice to see you. Um, I wish you all the best with the book. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that it's doing so well and I look forward to uh, reading it as well. Um, so final question. Uh, I have a time machine. I can take you to any point in the future, any point in the past. It's a round trip. I need you to come back. I need the machine back for the next guest on the podcast. Uh, you can visit yourself. You can visit someone in your life. You can change something about your life, but you don't have to do any of those sort of things. You can just go off and, you know, go to some period in history that you really wanted to visit or in the future. If you're curious about what comes next, where would you like to go? Can it be before I'm born? It can be whenever you want in the entire think... entirety of history or in the future. Okay. Well, and this could change every day, Will. You know that. I could, you could ask me tomorrow and it could be completely different. If you come back on the show again, I'll ask you again. That's how the show works. So okay. I'd like you to come back. And so okay. next time you can say something differently. Okay. Well, a little bit of controversy. I'd like to go back to the period of time when they talked about the man from Snowy River because it's believed that the man from Snowy River was actually an Aboriginal stockman. And I'd like to be around then and because I'm, yeah, I'd like to find out, speak, I'd like to maybe on country, it's Wiradjuri country, down there, Snowy River area. Some of it's Wiradjuri country. Um, and I'd like to be around that period of time. Well, I want to be in a big window of time that starts with the Battle of Bathurst and Windradino Warrior. Yeah. And ends with Jimmy Clements walking from Brungle to Parliament House, to the opening of Parliament House. And being and speaking to the Queen. He was a Wiradjuri man as well. I'd like, and the Memphis Snow River is in the middle there. I'd like that entire century. That's where I'd like to go in my time machine. And then I'd like to come back and I'd like to write the story. You Well, I was going to say that story. I mean, the story, if, if it is true that the man from Snowy River was an Aboriginal man, that's, that's a fucking story. Like that is, mate, that is, do you know what I mean? Like that is to me, like that movie, that book, that whatever that story is, Fuck, talk about blowing some right-wing commentators' minds. <laughs> like, people would melt down. Oh, what a great story. Google it. They mm. would lose... I mean, I'm just enjoying this story so much for, A, it makes a lot of sense to me. You're just knowing the kind of story you go, yeah, that would absolutely make sense that that might be 
like you know an indigenous person that those stories are about but secondly just the joy it would bring me hearing those people melt down like honestly i'm already imagine that's like telling them don bradman was actually a black fella like they would lose their minds can you imagine it would be so controversial controversial but if you have a look people in the area say that jack riley who was meant to be the minister didn't arrive in the area till after that poem was written yeah right that's a fucking great story what a great that's a great that is a great closer anita i love that so much i'm gonna yeah do some more research on that i definitely want to know all about the man gold star a a plus well done thank you so much for doing the show today thanks for having me 